Jim, you use the metaphor of a pole vaulter, and pole vaulters have to cross the bar. What exactly is the bar of renewable energy? It's the concept of grid parity. So a renewable energy producer must deliver the concept of firm power at a cost that is better than or equal to what's available from all other sources on the grid. I'm Peter J. Solomon, Chairman of PJ Solomon Company and Investment Bank, and I'm here today with Jim McGinnis, our partner in charge of renewable energy, a part of the world and an industry that is accelerating in terms of importance globally. Jim, you've been with us since 2018. Tell us a little about your background, which is unusual because you've been both an investment banker and in the industry, which gives you special insight. Thank you. And I came from Mainstream Renewable Power, where I was the CEO of Mainstream Renewable Capital, the funding and investments arm of that global developer based in Dublin with the New York office that I was building and approached by our partner, Jeff Pollard, in early 2018 to think about coming to PJ Solomon to start the renewables effort. Before that, I had been at Goldman Sachs and Morgan Stanley for 16 years in between them as a banker covering the energy sector, and then had been at uh, AIG, where I ran the private equity energy arm of that firm on balance sheet, and a couple of hedge funds, Harbinger and Halcyon, uh, doing energy investing on the hedge fund side. And so you're right, I had a different perspective on how capital is deployed in the space from, uh, from the corporate side, from the investor side, and from the investment banking side. And it's good to be back in investment banking. Well, we're glad to have you. It's one of the areas that Natixis, our parent company in, in France and throughout the world, thought very strongly about, has a real commitment to the uh, strategic initiatives in, in terms of uh, renewables. They have presence in Europe, Latin America, and Asia, so they needed a strong presence in the United States. Agreed. It's quite the opportunity for the firm now and for me professionally after 30 years in the energy and power sectors at such a transformative time. Well, you've had a terrific month. It's really been a terrific period to have you. Tell us about some of the deals that you just worked on, some of the investments. Yeah, we just announced two landmark transactions last month in August. Earlier in the month, we announced a strategic partnership and an initial $265 million investment in our client, the Italian-owned offshore developer U.S. Wind, by the $435 billion AUM uh, global investment behemoth Apollo uh, to build a, a $1.3 billion offshore wind farm off the coast of Maryland. It's the first step of what is designed to be a $4 billion plus investment program and a big boost for U.S. offshore wind, in my, in my view. And just last Thursday, our client Energy Capital Partners announced a definitive commitment to sell a 40% stake in Terragen LLC, one of the country's largest wind, solar, and energy storage firms, to First State, a rapidly growing and relatively new infrastructure investment arm, ultimately, of Mitsubishi UFJ Financial Group via its Australian affiliate, First Centier Investors. It's terrific to hear about this high level of activity, both for, of course from our firm's point of view, but equally it shows the sort of momentum in the renewable space. You write a lot, which is a terrific way to communicate. And one of the things you wrote, uh, you wrote a piece called Clean Energy, Pole Vault Moment. It's an interesting metaphor. Were you a pole vaulter? <laughs> no, I, I use the metaphor for a different reason. You'll recall in late February, just as the COVID-19 pandemic pushed many of us into for some form of Zoom tethered lockdown, 
I wrote a piece called Skyscraper Turbines and Ankle High Fences, which is available on the website now. It's a critical examination of certain low-lying obstacles which are tripping up a slowly emerging renewable energy sector. And now in a combination of internal and external factors, which I discussed in the new piece, the clean energy business is really taking off. I like the metaphor in part because it captures the theme of a sector undergoing a remarkably powerful pivot, essentially boosting its economic importance across many sectors and increasingly in the public's eye. I like the metaphor also because of a personal memory. What was the memory? Did you fall sure. on your face going over? <laughs> what did you do? No, in, in grade school years, I, I lived at West Point. My father was an engineering instructor and he was a, a graduate of, of, of the academy. So I'm an army brat. And my dad, who was also an airborne ranger, was, a, was a, a track star undergrad and a track coach while I was there. And I went to a lot of track meets. It was awesome. Uh, and to see the events uh, w- w- was thrilling as a child, but also a particular fascination with the pole vaulters. These cadets have a five-second performance, a fearless run, and a make or break. Either you clear the bar or you don't. And that is what was all still fresh in my mind. Why does wind and solar development evoke a memory of a, of a pole vaulter. Are they going to get over the bar? Are they going to hit the bar? I remember the tantalizing thing as they go over the bar and their last toe hits the bar. The bar quivers, 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 and then falls or doesn't. So is the bar, is it going to fall? when it, It's going to quiver without doubt. I think the winners will, uh, will definitely clear the bar, Peter. Um, the industry is at yet another juncture with uh, a really significant pivot here, uh, with exponentially boosting its economic importance and role across many sectors and and increasingly in the public's eye. Uh, This comes from dramatic cost drops and efficiency gains in both the the sources of power, solar panels and and wind turbines, as I've written in the past, but also large-scale batteries and, and frankly, financial innovation. It brings the firm delivery of power, uh, important from an intermittent delivery of power, a firm delivery of power for renewables, not just up to the bar of grid parity, but now easily clearing it in most parts of the country. So, uh, Jim, I've, I've spent a lot of my life, as have you, on Cape Cod and, and the uh, and environmental uh, impact of the a proposed wind farm in Nantucket Sound, and that was proposed for about a generation, and, and it finally, I believe, was shot down. Are uh, the new proposals going to be uh, able to get by environmental concerns, regulatory concerns, etc.? Peter, yes, in fact, I've spent the last six months of this COVID lockdown in my, my place in Brewster on Cape Cod, and so love the Cape and New England. That project, Cape Wind and Nantucket Sound, was defeated after, as you said, a great deal of line of sight protests, but also because simply put the cost of that power was enormous, maybe five X what we're looking at today. And the new farms that are being built south of Nantucket uh, include uh, Vineyard Wind, which is an 800 megawatt farm, part of what will be more than 2000 megawatts. But the first 800 megawatts is uh, in its final stages of approval and, and awaiting a final approval from the Bureau of Ocean Energy Management. It has a competitive price. It has the engineering to bring it to shore. It it stabilizes the southern part of New England's uh, electricity supply. And I think there'll be many more projects that come from that will be built successfully offshore. So I think we're at a new phase. uh, And we'll talk about that a little bit with one of the announcements we had had last month. So the winners will certainly clear the bar is what you're saying. 
Yes, that's that's correct. In some markets and uh, in some states, the developers are ascendant, but not everywhere. Modestly better prices and improved products rarely guarantee success. The natural winners among our clients uh, are products whose consumers simply choose to buy them with little or no cost to change their behavior. But in the case of electricity, customers usually must actively petition to unplug from another source. So there's a friction cost. The product has to be compelling. It has to be consistent in delivering better value in order to change the old habits. These issues have always been political issues. There are a lot of invested costs, a lot of positions on each side. The, the world seems to be moving towards renewables. Uh, how do you look at the political landscape? Uh, how do you look at the Biden Green Plan? How's the Senate going to react? What, what do you think about all this? It's unknowable, and as you know, my, my, my profession is investment banking, not political prognosticator. Um, that said, the $2 trillion four-year spending plan that Joe Biden has announced is sweeping in its potential to change and accelerate the growth of renewable energy in the U.S. The big economic stimulus, which he emphasizes creates jobs and directly from those expenditures, will also boost efficiency across the manufacturing of the turbines, the solar panels, and add manufacturing jobs with better efficiency as a big economic bonus. Plan calls for, among other many other things, the U entire U.S. electricity generating sector to be carbon neutral by 2035. That's in 15 years. So it's still in early draft form with en enormous numbers of details to follow, of course, and uh, meaningful parts beyond wind, solar, and storage, such as carbon emissions, cuts in transportation, housing, manufacturing, and commercial real estate. That's It's quite a broad program. That said, you know, I studied government at Harvard, our, our alma mater, and one, one thing I learned about congressional action is you need both houses. You would need a 60-vote majority in the Senate to pass whatever bill Biden puts on the table. So I, I think whereas the Senate may, in, in certain circumstances may be up for grabs on a majority basis, it's not likely to be up for grabs on a 60-vote basis, which was the same drill the Waxman-Markey carbon tax uh, legislation had over a decade ago. But overcoming obstacles with, um, with legislation is one thing. I think overcoming obstacles with costs is another. These my clients are pushing with, uh, with lower turbine blade costs and lower solar panel costs into cities and states to meet renewable portfolio standards. In fact, 29 states have uh, assigned portfolio RPSs and required that utilities purchase power from renewables and obtain, uh, to obtain renewable energy certificates or credits, RECs. And according to the National Council of State Legislatures, for instance, they estimate that approximately half the growth in renewable energy since 2000, so for the last 20 years, is a direct result of those RPS uh, mandates. Jim, you know, I worked for Jimmy Carter in, in 1976 in this, during his administration, and almost everything he proposed included wind, water, and sun. But the push for that mostly was coming from the federal government. There was no groundswell in localities or endowments or state houses. Even when I worked for Ed Koch, during that same period, and I was responsible for energy and renewable energy. Uh, we couldn't get much done because the costs were too high, et cetera. Right. I do think you have a changed environment. Is that what you're seeing? Absolutely. Solar plus storage is coming in at roughly two cents a kilowatt hour, which is below grid parity in most states. 
and that's at a relatively high capacity factor. So thinking thinking U.S. Southeast or U.S. Southwest, and offshore wind comes in at a, a roughly fifty percent capacity factor in the in the Northeast. So it needs to be blended with, of course, utility scale storage. But those governors, uh, for instance, in the Northeast, Governor uh, Phil Murphy of New Jersey, my old boss at Goldman, in fact, uh, who introduced me to the, the power sector. Governor Baker in Massachusetts, uh, Ned Lamont in Connecticut, and Governor Hogan in Maryland, for instance, have all linked arms together to push ahead for this offshore wind development to take place. What they see is not just a reliable and cheap source of power over the long term, because the, the size of this resource is immense, but also jobs. So jobs to restore kind of battered northeastern ports and jobs uh, for longshoremen. And uh, as both Phil and Phil Murphy and, and Joe Biden have pointed out, these are union jobs uh, in many of these states. And so it's, it's, a, it's an economic jolt for uh, that group of states who want to pursue U.S. offshore. And it is, it is highly political, but it's also highly economic. As you look at the various states reacting to uh, renewables, uh, one of the concerns uh, seems to be arising from the issue of California and whether California's problems are related somehow to too much projected reliance on renewables, particularly, I guess, solar in terms of sunset and other right. times it ceases to be as valuable. Well, listen, Peter, the, the CalISO, the, uh, which is uh, shorthand for the California Independent System Operator, governs the deployment of the allocation of power resources across the state. And we're looking into what happened over the last couple of weeks as, uh, as blackouts occurred on a rolling basis to curtail demand. But CalISO was, was um, curtailing power when reserve margins were still something in the, in the 9% or below, and so 8 to 9%, when in fact the, their counterpart, uh, the ISO in Texas, ERCOT, regularly operates with reserve margins below 5%. So the, it was a decision to curtail power where reserves were at 9%. I think there'll be more of an investigation and determination of when is the right time to curtail power. Nonetheless, it has a white hot focus on battery uh, storage for utility scale battery storage in Northern California, in Southern California. So to the extent that uh, solar power or wind power can't provide the baseline needed, the batteries kick in. We think that lithium ion cells, a 35-year-old technology, is improving its, in its, its cost and efficiency. But we're also looking at this energy storage sector in terms of other chemical uh, processes and solutions. And the technology in the space is being very closely watched. Uh, it's the most important part of the puzzle, in my view. And so we're working with a number of clients that um, both are producers of battery storage units, developers of the of battery storage, and all of the renewable developers that we see today think about solar plus storage or wind plus storage. And so we're seeing that battery piece come into play in a huge way in our space. One of the interesting things is in an era during the pandemic where you think that uh, activity would slow down, activity actually is accelerated. Again, talk about some of the deals that you've seen. Have there been any in the battery area? Are there investments in the battery area that are evident? There are a couple of ongoing processes with some confidential details ongoing right now where a number of buyers are looking to make an acquisition of battery technology companies. And I'll say that, you know, it's interesting, this, this COVID slowdown that you mentioned took us off course for a few months. For instance, the Apollo 
Toto transaction focused on U.S. wind, which is building an offshore wind farm off the coast of Maryland. As I mentioned, a $1.3 billion project. But the parent company of U.S. wind is Toto Group Holdings, which as its main asset owns the A24, A25 toll road known in Italy as Strada di Parque. And that toll road went from a $35 million plus EBITDA business to almost zero uh, over the course of March, April, May. And, and so the transaction with Apollo, thinking about a parent with an infrastructure business and U.S. wind with, as I mentioned, the BOEM uh, delay on vineyard wind with a, a bit of a pause on approvals for, for offshore wind, that transaction was uh, complicated. And the COVID slowdown prevented us from traveling back and forth, uh, getting in a room and solving the issues. And yet, through all of that, uh, Ricardo Toto and his team at U.S. Wind and their resilient counterparts at Apollo were determined to look past that turbulence and get to an answer and think about uh, what is the historic nature of their combined business plan. And so getting all of that done in the context of a, of a COVID shutdown, in my mind, was the most remarkable transaction I've worked on in my 30 plus year career on Wall Street. It's the product of uh, grit and resilience, quite an experience. You know, it's amazing to me that you guys have been able to do so much business, both in your area and at the P.J. Solomon Company remotely. What have you learned about doing business remotely? I'm sure there's a ubiquitous trend of availability. You and I you are find, remote, but we're... You can find people. You can find people. And they can find me. And so there's a, an acceleration to answering questions, solving problems, um, and the feedback loop gets tighter and the information flows become more efficient. I'd also say that the trends that I described at the start of our conversation about the renewable energy sector has imbued everyone in the space with an increased sense of urgency. This is the time. Let's get this done. And so there's been a a virtual focus, uh, which has resulted in a real set of business opportunities that that have been pretty dramatic. And I think we're gonna continue to see the same based on the, the backlog of business that we see. Let me ask you another question. It's an old investment banking question. How do you do due diligence? How do you do site visits and uh, and travel? All the important things you learn in investment banking actually to make sure that the, the warehouse is there or make sure that the turbine is actually turning. A fair question. And the answer is, on the one hand, travel itself is a challenge. My clients in Rome were certainly not flying to New York, but yet you know, an offshore wind farm that, that is not yet built is desktop due diligence. For some of the projects that we're working on where there are existing development projects, that's desktop due diligence as well. Where there are operating projects or projects under construction, those construction crews are still working. They are deemed necessary infrastructure players. And so the, the actual work on the projects, the construction of wind turbines has not slowed down. And so the access to those projects by consultants that are in the field has not slowed down. That part of it is a little inconvenient in terms of the manager flying in to visit, but the reality is it hasn't slowed things down at all. Let's talk about Harvard a little. I was an overseer of Harvard when there were proposals to investment because of South Africa. President of Harvard, then Derek Bach said, they gave into that next week somebody will come back on chemicals and then one day they'll come back on oil and lo and behold that was uh, 40 years ago and and now the the three overseers elected the board right in 
who have proposed that Harvard, and Harvard has accepted that, I believe, to get rid of all fossil fuel investments by in 25 years or so. You know, is that a trend you see happening elsewhere? I do. I think Harvard Endowment's always been a leader, just like the Yale Endowment has. I was in the freshman yard when Derek Bach was president and when the South Africa divestment protests occurred. And look, I think there's a, a voice to student protesting saying, if we shout loud enough, the endowment will listen to us. I, I think that transaction occurred, that there was a noise and the endowment did hear. But I also think those of us in the renewable power space exclusively, which is what I do, are cognizant of the fact that fossil fuels need to provide a bridge. We can't just go from 8% of the generation source to 100% overnight. We need to step into it carefully. And large players like Shell and BP are examples of companies that themselves have said, we're going to pivot to the energy transformation space. And so divesting of an investment in Shell, divesting of an investment in BP may not be the right solution either. Having said all that, I think investors always have to think about the future, and the future is an energy transition, and that's, uh, that's what we're focused on. So to get back to the old Paul Walter, <laughs> you're going to clear the bar. It will quiver, but the foot will get over, and uh, it looks like there's going to be a, continue to be huge amounts of activity and investment in the field. One of the points you just made, which I think is is very important, is some of the largest investors in renewables are going to be the legacy companies as they transition, because they have the need to, to be in the business. And they know how to deal with change. They know how to deal with fundamental challenges to their space. Another example is Equinor, used to be called Statoil. They have the largest piece of land to develop offshore wind in the New York Bight, off the coast of Coney Island, 25 miles off. But for an oil company to be one of the largest wind developers in the U.S., Shell is doing it in New Jersey and in Massachusetts as well. I think these players, as I said, are used to risk. They're, they're happy to uh, deploy billions of capital to pursue a transition that they know is occurring with their effort and a bridge to the future through perhaps moving from coal to natural gas-fired generation, for instance. We see the energy transition taking time, and there are going to be multiple players and investors to follow in that in that regard. I'm thrilled to be in this industry at this time. There's a lot of innovation. There are a lot of talented engineers and strategic-minded leaders and purpose-driven professionals. So I uh, feel like I'm at the right place now in helping people clear that high bar. Jim, thanks. I think you are. And uh, as the chairman of P.J. Solomon Company, I'm thrilled you're with us. I think you're in exactly the right place. You talk about closing New York City. New York City's energy costs are twice than most other places, the largest other cities. And it's one of the yep. reasons New York City lost all its manufacturing was the cost of energy. So a city like New York or Boston, cities like Boston, really require new energy sources at lower rates. My partner, Jeff Pollard, and I think about that specific problem all the time with other clients uh, so that it's a way for us to collaborate because New York's an example of a city that must use a transition fuel. Uh, it, can't, it can't go 100% uh, renewable right away. It's gotta be fixed in the meantime. Well, thank you, Jim. Thank you for listening to PJ Solomon Presents. My research papers on the topic are available on pjsolomon.com. <laughs>